Okay, all right. There's a passage we actually need to look at today. <laughs> Enough about all this. Let's open up to, um, to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, the end of this passage. And then we're going to be reading about this wonderful account of this, uh, this meal that was served in, uh, in Bethany in honor of Jesus in this beautiful act of Mary. But let's take a look at just where we're at in the Gospel of John as we've been looking at the Gospel of John, walking through the story of Jesus and his life. And now we're coming to this point in the Gospel of John where we're taking this turn, where the seven signs have been performed, the, all the signs you need to know to believe in Jesus. This is according to John. All the signs you need to know have been provided, and now we're taking this turn into the last week of Jesus's life that is going to be this mixture of love and affection and lauding as well as the plotting and deception and the violence that comes upon Jesus. And so as we walk through this, we're going to start to look at how this turn is being taken. Look at where we're at, John eleven fifty five. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So we are on the heels of the raising of Lazarus, Jesus has, is essentially a wanted criminal, a wanted man. He's gone away for a few days, and now he's coming back into this last week of his life, 1156. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? And so you get this picture of these, the Pharisees and the leaders, the religious leaders, standing in the middle of the house of God, and they're like, is he not going to come? You don't think he's going to actually show up to this thing. Like it's, we, we put out the word, because then it says in, in 7, 1157, the chief priests and the Pharisees had already made public their given orders. That if anyone knew where he was, they should rat him out. So they might arrest him. And so this is where we come now. We have this, the stage has been set. Jesus is away. He's coming back. And on his way back into Jerusalem, he's got to go again through Bethany. Look at 12.1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so recalling this wonderful passage of, and somebody, what was it, Gary? Gary was saying that I intimate, I, I, um, I uh, imitated a dead man last week as I was hopping out. Rap I was like, he wasn't dead, Gary. He was alive. I was imitating a live guy. That's the point, right? That, so, yes, that we, he was bound and then let go. He was healed of what he was raised from the dead, kind of a first fruit of what we're going to see with Jesus. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, and, there, and really what we're going to focus on today is just the really what Mary's action is, because Mary's action is the thing that really steals the show, if you will, or at least takes the spotlight and shines it on Jesus. But there's a couple of things that I just want to point out before we, uh, before we come to this, that there are other members of this Bethany family. We've got Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and I just want to take a second just to think a little bit about, their, all of them are mentioned in this passage, but I want us to just take a second to just un, kind of understand where they're at in this particular season of their life. They had just come out of a very dark season. 
that this disorienting season of Lazarus' sickness, the sickness of their brother, and not just sickness, but like the direness of then, we've got to find Jesus, we've got to call to Jesus. Like you guys all know what it's like to be sick, but you also know what it's like to say, I need to go to the urgent care. And you know on top of that, I know what, it, I, know what I need to go to the emergency room, right? Like they've gone through that season where it's like, it's dire, and we've got we've to get the doc. We've got to get Jesus in here. And then the death of their brother. And the disappointment with Jesus. Of Jesus being too late. Entering into the Shiva and all these people coming in. The grieving, the mourning. And then the relational confrontation with Jesus. Like, those of you who've gone through maybe a season of grief or a season of trouble in your life, I think just the idea, the emotional and energy toll it takes, like how you're not sleeping well at night, and, and you're, you're worried, and you're trying to figure, like this is, they've come out of a season in which they were so, they were so concerned and upset, even with Jesus, someone they loved. But the beautiful thing is, that Jesus showed up and it wasn't too late. And that he was, he was raised from the dead. Like they, they, and I think we've all experienced this too, where if you come out of a dark season, the kind of lightness and joy that comes when God provides out of that season. Maybe there's a sense of healing, of well-being, like I'm back to myself. Like, and, and Lazarus, I mean, obviously Lazarus was dead and now he's alive and he's like, I'm alive. Like just think about kind of the lightness the optimism. Anybody, I mean, I'm looking out at everybody, and I'm, I mean, maybe I just didn't hit the nail on the head on this one, but there is this time, these times in our lives where we come out of disorientation into the new orientation. It's like my morning has been turned to dancing, right? Like, and there's just a sense of like, yes, anything is possible. I'm ready. And that would be the sense that this family has. Like, we just saw our brother die, we buried him, and Jesus showed up and raised him from the dead. Like, they're walking around, they're like, let's plan a party. Like, let's, get, let's, all, let's all get together, let's talk about this, like, let's bring everybody together. They get to the town. It doesn't just say that this family's having this party. It's kind of like the village of Bethany is like, Jesus is coming, let's, do a, let's have a party. Let's throw a dinner. Let's do this in honor of him. Like, this is awesome. It's Passover. It's almost like, like Christmas is coming. It, it's like all of the energy that you might expect in coming out of a dark season into the light. All right, no, just me then. Okay, it's, it's, it's cool. It's early in the morning. Everybody, thank you. I appreciate all that. Okay, so Jesus, so now that Jesus is in town, they and their friends want to plan a dinner for Jesus, look at 12.2. So they gave a dinner for him there in Bethany. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Let's just talk about Martha for a second, because I just want to walk through each of these persons before we get to, to Mary. So Martha, it says, so the portrait of the sisters, if you remember the Luke 10 passage, where like Jesus shows up, and Martha's busy, you guys remember this, and everybody is always shamed by the Martha busyness if, you, if you've been like, right, right? So Martha's all, she's doing all this stuff, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha's like, Jesus, don't you care that I'm like doing all this stuff? And so like the portrait of them is actually in line, like uh, Mary's going to be at the feet of Jesus again, right? And Martha is serving, but, it does, is, but do you get no sense of that, like they're at each other. 
right? You only get this sense that like Martha is now serving out of joy and Mary is going to do what she does out of joy. I think what's also interesting is that um, is you have this gathering of several families, but I think the interesting thing is also about Lazarus. Look at Lazarus. It says Lazarus, it says that, what, what is Lazarus doing? Like Martha's serving, Mary's at the feet of Jesus, and what's Lazarus doing? Well, he's just eating at the table. Like, this is awesome. Like, I was dead, and now I get to eat with Jesus. Like, this is what it's all about. He's at the table eating with Jesus. Probably Lazarus is either the host or someone that is doing this. Jesus is the guest of honor in this, in this case. But what's interesting is that the very presence of Lazarus, so I think the interesting thing is this. So after this happens, and we, didn't, we talked about this last week, that we don't get to know what happens after Lazarus is raised. And it's like, I would, have been, I would have loved to be around the kitchen table for a few days and just hear all the conversation. But one thing that we do know is that the very presence of Lazarus alive is somehow testimony about who Jesus is and what Jesus is capable of. If you look down at 12.9, like, so th this idea that what, is, what has Lazarus been doing? My guess is Lazarus has just been testifying. It says in 12.9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also because of Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests in 1210, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Like, like he's alive and we've got to get rid of, if we want to get rid of Jesus, we've got to get rid of Lazarus too. Because, and this is, listen to what it says, because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus being alive is simply testimony about Jesus. And I would imagine that Lazarus is doing what every other person in the Gospel of John does when they have an encounter with Jesus. They talk about what that was. Nathaniel, he saw me under the fig tree. The woman at the well, he told me everything I'd ever done. Nicodemus, he, went, he met with me at night, he told me I had to be born again. The servants at the feast, he made the best wine I'd ever tasted. He made me well. I can use my legs again. I was blind, and now I see. What do you think Lazarus was saying? I was dead. I was dead, and he made me alive. Like, the very presence of Lazarus is like, if we're going to get rid of Jesus, we've got to get rid of Lazarus too. Just his presence is enough to make people say, I want to follow Jesus. Like, imagine that. I mean, what an awesome testimony that just, you, just your presence showing up in a situation would be something that people would say, yeah, because Chris is here, I want to follow Jesus. Because Brian's here, I want to follow Jesus. Because Sheila's here, I want to follow Jesus. Like, that, that's the gospel of John. And everybody who, who encounters Jesus has this one-sentence testimony. I was dead, and now I'm alive. And now he's so intertwined with Jesus, like if you're going to get rid of Jesus, you've got to get rid of Lazarus too. Anyway, that, look, that's not even the main point of the sermon, but I mean, you've got you to kind of uh, get that, right? 
that these people, their lives have been changed, they've been brought into a new season, that there's something that has happened and is going on here. He was testifying, and his presence and his testimony were undeniable, undeniable. All right, so that's Lazarus. So Martha is serving, right? The theological conversation, the server, right? Lazarus is eating and testifying. Let's give him a little credit there. Eating is a great theological activity too, okay? It is a great thing. And then Mary, what Mary does is really the, the, the central part of this. And what Mary does is she anoints. The real punch of this account comes at the hands of Mary. Look at 12.3. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. All right, so there's a little bit, if we're going to understand what Mary's doing, we've got it, there's a little bit of distance between where we are today and where she is. Like if I just said, it's pure nard. You're like, what are you talking about? Okay, so let's see if we can, we can kind of bridge some of this that's going on. So the scene, the scene that is implied by John is that Mary quietly approaches Jesus at table, while he's at table, while he's eating. Now in our view, what we would think is this. Jesus is at the table, and he's eating, and Mary comes up and anoints his feet, and he's, you know, like, Okay, like, that's the way we think about it, okay? But that's not the way this would have worked, okay? And this is why anything, anytime we do, like, feet washing or anytime we do, we hear this story, we have to understand that there's something else going on here. So the, the way this would have worked is you would have had a table in the middle, and instead of sitting upright like this, what you would do is you would recline comfortably, leaning on your left arm and eating with your right arm. Now, the way this then works, if I'm at a table and there's another couch there, another couch there, there's an open end here, and if I'm at the table like this, where are my feet? Like, where's the, I guess, where's the focus of attention? The focus of attention is here at the table. Where is not the focus of attention? Your feet, they're hanging off the edge. And so what Martha, or what Martha, what Mary does, excuse me, gosh, I'm just not as spry as I used to be. What she does is she kind of quietly comes up, quietly comes up, kneels down. Again, the focus, the focus is all over here. This is where the guests, all the guests' heads and all the conversation is going on up here. She quietly comes in to where his feet are. Quietly. And we would not, we would not have known exactly like if other people saw, but in a, in a meal like this, there's all kinds of commotion, there's all kinds of things going on, and she comes up quietly. This is the scene. And it says this, it says, a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Okay, now this is the other thing that we have to kind of bridge here. So it says it's an ointment, and the word ointment can mean like oils or like a balm or like a perfume. So think about the consistency of maybe like a perfume or an essential oil or something like that. And it says that the ointment is made from, uh, from nard or spikenard. Spikenard is a plant from India. It has really aromatic blossoms. And so what they would do is they would harvest the spikenard and they would kind of, um, kind of like essential oils, 
they would take it and they would, um, they would get it down to its essence. And that would be from like the buds and the leaves, but um, it's described as pure or true. And it turns out that, um, and I, this is the thing, like we, you think about like, anyways, um, when people sold nard, that oftentimes you, you get the sense that it's very expensive because of, of the price that it is. And so people would oftentimes try to put like um, pieces of the roots or things like the non-aromatic pieces in it. And, and they're like, this is, this, is no, this is no mixed nard, this is pure nard, right? But even for us, we're like, nard, <laughs> anyway, to me, I, it's kind of a funny term. I, it doesn't, thank you. I appreciate that other people just, when you read this, you're not like, oh, that's awesome. You're like, oh, that sounds weird. But it's pure. It's whatever it is, it's expensive. It's the good stuff. It's the good stuff. And it comes from half a world away, India and Nepal. So it, ha- it, it comes from long distance. It's very rare. And in this case, it's pure. No stuff, no fillers. I prefer my nard pure. So this is a little bit of the distance. So yeah, anyway, we don't, you know, we don't go to the market and say, well, is this pure? You know, nard or is it adulterated nard? Um, okay, now, to, so our, our most expensive perfumes today run about 42000 Sorry, $4,200 an ounce. That's the most expensive perfume you can buy, okay? Um, you could go on Amazon and get a bottle of Chanel Number no. 5 for about 153 bucks, and you get two ounces. Okay, so just think about the perfume that maybe you have at home or the, the cologne. I don't know if there's a cologne crowd in here or not or a perfume crowd, but you, the bottles that you have probably have about two ounces, the word for pound here is the word litron, which in, in the Roman world would have been about 12 ounces. So think about, about, we've got about six bottles of perfume, and what she's going to do is she's going to kneel down, and she's going to pour it all out. All of it. Some of you guys probably have, might even have a bottle of perfume that you've had for like years, because you just use it sparingly, right? Because you just need a little bit, in order to do it. And so, but what she's doing is this very extravagant act of multiple bottles of perfume are being poured out. One of the commentators says, this is, a re- this is therefore a ridiculously lavish amount of such fine perfume to be used all at once and especially to, when applied to only one person. So that's, that's the one pound of this oil, this ointment, this perfume that she uses. And it says that she anoints Jesus. Now, um, in the Old Testament, if you, were, uh, if you wanted to set a person apart for a particular role, like priests would be anointed. And they would usually have a big turban, and you would pour the perfume on the turban so that whenever they put the turban on, there would be a smell, there would be an aroma, there would be a, a scent that went with it, that the priest is in, the, you're in the presence of this priest, and so they have this turban on that has kind of been anointed and soaked in this perfume. Kings also would be anointed. And the idea, and even, and in the ancient world, it was very common and very understood that if you had, if you were a king, that there would be these scents that would be poured on you so that when you came into a room that people might anticipate your presence 
by the, the pleasing aroma that was coming in. And, and while you were in the presence of the king, it would be notable that it was, it was an uncommon, lavish, extravagant scent. And then when the, when the king would leave the room, that scent would kind of linger. And so royalty would be the ones who would be anointed in this sort of a way. And most of the time, what would happen is they would be anointed on their heads. And the reason why is because your head is the most honorable part of your body in the ancient world. Like there's all kinds of parts of your body. The most honorable is your head. The least honorable is your feet. We'll get to the feet in just a second. But if you were a king, you would be anointed on your head and that would, that would kind of linger with you in your hair and on your body and on your clothes. John wants to make a point that whatever Mary is doing, that this expensive, lavish, luxurious perfume fit for the head of a king, does not even begin to show the value of him. She barely is able to put it on his feet. How important, how awesome is Jesus? The most expensive perfume that you can buy doesn't even belong on his head. John's point is that this is going, that she is, she is noting the value not of the perfume. She's using the perfume to show the value of Jesus. It's not, the perfume is of such horrible quality, it's not even fit to be on his head. But it's the best, most expensive perfume we can possibly find. So her point is that it's a lavish, extravagant show, not to show the value of the perfume, but to show the value of Jesus. And she pours it all out. Mary is saying, the most expensive thing I have is only good enough for his feet. It's kind of like John the Baptist who says, who am I? I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Only slaves, that's slave work, and I'm not even worthy of that. And this is in the same vein as what Mary is saying here. She's being extravagant. She's intending to present Jesus as a royal personage, personage, a king, anointed, honored, scented. By the way, let's see if this works. Let's see what, when people start to smell this. So we have, a, we, we have our diffuser, and every once in a while we put in new scents and whatnot. So our spring scent, I was like, this is going to be our, this is our spring scent. We usually run it for about an hour before service, so when you walk in, there, there's a freshness to, the, to the, the place. And so I just turned it on. Usually I turn it on at like 10%. I just turned it on to basically like 100%, and we'll see. I should put a timer on it so it doesn't go out. Um, but we'll see. We'll see exactly how much we get here. Anyway, we'll see when people start to smell it. But this would have been the idea that after she does this, that it starts to fill the room. It starts to fill the room. But she does something else here that would raise people's eyebrows. It says this. In, two th- in 12.3, it says that she wiped his feet with her hair. And what she does if it's scandalous that she's used this very expensive perfume, and we're going to see that Judas is going to say 300 denarii, which is like a year's worth of wages. He's like, this is a year's worth of wages down the tubes. This is like 40 grand that's just down the tubes. 
But what she does, it says that she, she uses her hair, and what she would have had to do, she would have had a head covering, and she would have had to take her head covering off and taken her hair and shaken it loose. And this is something that women in the ancient world never did in public and never did in front of any other man. And there's a table of men eating. And she takes her hair and she shakes it down, she shakes it loose. And instead of using a towel to wipe Jesus' feet, she uses her hair. It no doubt would have been viewed as scandalous or taboo for a woman to let down her hair. And she's not intending a sexual act, but this would have been the sort of thing that a woman does on her wedding night and lets her hair down for her spouse. But there's other examples in the ancient world of of, of people letting their hair down, and it shows an attitude of submission and humility. Also to the idea that this king is so precious and valuable, my hands are not soft enough to touch him. I have to use the softest thing that I possibly have, which is my hair. Letting her hair down for any person communicated intimacy, extreme gratitude, and an expression of humility. He has just raised her brother from the dead. She has followed him. There there must have been some means of wealth in the family. They might have even supported him in his ministry. I mean, they're able to, to actually purchase and have this perfume on hand. And what she does by doing it, she opens herself up to shame for breaking these norms to the whispers. This is expensive and extravagant. Can we really afford this? And this is intimate, honoring, and submissive. Is anyone worthy of this display? And then it says that the room was filled with this royal scent. And I think what you guys are getting here is, like, this is a real holy moment that is taking place. And probably for people, it would have, like, taken them back, like, what's going on? Like, this perfume is, is filling the room, and this woman's here, and she's shaking her hair out, and... Like, what are, what's going on in, like, looking to Jesus? Like, what is the response to be? For Mary, this was the equation. No matter the cost, no matter what other people think, I have to honor Jesus. Let me say that again. No matter the cost, no matter what anyone else thinks, I have to to honor Jesus. It's a holy moment. And then the first guy to talk is Judas. Judas is a real piece of work, everybody. It's funny, we were, Jeff and I were talking before. Do you know that every time Judas is mentioned in the New Testament, every time he's mentioned, the, the authors cannot help themselves but say, he's the guy who betrayed Jesus. Like, every time he's mentioned, they're like, yeah, he's the guy who betrayed Jesus. Like, they can't even help themselves. Even if it's just in a narrative, you got the parentheses, the guy who betrayed Jesus. And this is another one of those. This this holy moment, the scent, all of this is going on, and Judas is the one to break the silence. And in this moment of honoring Jesus, what Judas says is this. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, 
who was about to betray Jesus, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now let me just read between the lines of what Judas is doing. We talked about last week when, Mary, when Jesus shows up and both Mary and Martha, they both say to him what? If you were here, my brother would be alive. And what, we, what did we call it? We called it an indirect rebuke. Because the implication is, Jesus, you should have been here, right? Judas is giving an indirect rebuke. And he's not just giving it to Mary, he's giving it to Jesus. Like, he doesn't even start with, hey, Lord, why would, like, he doesn't even start with, like, any, he just jumps right into, why wasn't this sold for its market value and that money given to the poor? And what that does in this holy moment, this woman on her knees now, who's opened herself up to shame, who's opened herself up to being misunderstood, she is essentially further, she's shamed for her activity. And he also, so it's a direct, it's a rebuke to her, but it's also a rebuke to Jesus, like, hey, Jesus, like, why are you allowing this? So Judas, in this moment, is, is rebuking Mary and rebuking Jesus, I mean, we got to understand what's going on here. One woman is saying, no matter the cost, no matter what it costs, whatever, whatever, think about me, it doesn't matter, I need to honor Jesus. And Judas is like, what's the market value of that perfume? And this is the thing, this is the calculus. Mary's calculus is, it doesn't matter how much it costs, it doesn't matter what people think, I have to do this. Judas's calculus is, what's the market value? And Judas will use that calculus even later on because he will value the life of Jesus at 30 pieces of silver. What's the market value for Jesus? And there's a reason why whenever Judas is remembered, the authors cannot help themselves. And then we also hear that you know, um, if you look in verse 7 or verse 6, uh, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He used to skim off the top, like he was the guy who bought all the, the, the provisions, but he used to always like get a, like a little 10% off the top for himself, you know, a little something for the effort kind of a thing. Like, yeah, that's, you know, just the, you know, they, they can't expect me to go do all this without a little bit of, you know, something or other. And so Judas was the guy who kept the money bag, but he also, it turns out that he would skim off the top. He used to help himself to what was put into it. He didn't really care about the poor. To Mary, Jesus is worth a reputation, whatever she owned, her whole self, no matter the cost, no matter what other people thought. I have to honor Jesus. And Judas is like, I'll take 30 pieces of silver. So while Martha is in the kitchen, bringing food out, and Lazarus is like, I'm alive, and he's eating, and Mary is just having this moment, and Judas is like, what's going on? Like, we, we need to sell this stuff. Jesus is also doing something, and he's preparing for the last week of his life. Jesus will actually restore the moment and turn it into an even more profound direction. Look at 12.7. So Jesus says, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That's how the ESV translates this. And then he says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have 
me. First, he addresses the question of the rebuke of Mary. And what he says to her, what he says is to Judas, leave her alone. Another way you could actually translate that, it's actually the same word for forgive. Forgive her. It actually could be the same thing. Now, it probably says leave her alone because he doesn't think that what she's doing is wrong. But that's the idea. Like Judas, let her be. Leave her alone. Or forgive her. Whatever you think you need to do, leave her alone. And then he says, uh, so, for, so she can keep it for the day of my burial. Um, what he does, he, 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 objects, he, he addresses the objection to the poor, and he basically says this, you're going to be able to help the poor when I'm gone, but I'm not always going to be here. He's not saying you don't need to help the poor. He's like, yes, you will be able to help the poor on another day. He says, it was intended to be kept for the day of my preparation for burial. And this is this, it's kind of a weird translation, way, way to translate this, but rather than uh, let her keep it for the day of my burial. So she poured it all out. She doesn't get to keep any of it. But the idea was, what he says is that she was intending to keep it to the day of my death. And what he does is while Mary is like, I'm going to anoint you as king, and usually you anoint the king at the beginning of his reign. But what these perfumes are also for is for anointing for burial. And what Jesus says is, she just anointed me as king, but what really she did was she was the first one to anoint me for my burial. I'm going to die. And he moves this to this idea that, look, I am the Lamb of God who has come to give his life for the sins of the world. It's right, I am a king, and she's right, but this is also a movement toward death. She anointed me a king, but you will be burying me soon. And what we find out is that in this, in this dining room, we have this very private moment of Jesus being recognized as king. And what's going to happen the next day is he's going to walk towards Jerusalem, and there are going to be throngs of people, people waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel, a public event in which people are going to be shouting that he is the king of Israel. And so we have this quiet, holy moment before this public moment that is to come. But as we, kinda, as we finish this up, I just want to move back to Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and I just want to ask, I just want to take a moment just to ask us in here and to ask this question. In a, in a story like this where there's so many people giving so much to Jesus and saying so much about him, it's just to ask the question, like, what do, what do I have to give? What do we have to give? What do you have to give to Jesus? And I think, like Lazarus, what do we have to give? I think the first and foremost thing, and maybe the most important thing, is we have our testimony to give. What has Jesus done for you? Everybody in the Gospel of John, when they encounter Jesus, they come out with a one-sentence testimony. What is your one-sentence testimony? And I've shared this before. I think for me, I would say, Jesus gave me purpose in my life. Jesus gave me a peace that passes all understanding. And I don't know what it, like those would be, that would be a one-sentence thing that somebody would say, why do you follow Jesus? Why are you a Christian? I would say, I met Jesus and he gave me purpose for my life. That would be a one sentence. I don't know what it is for you. 
And I think that we've talked about it as we've gone through the Gospel of John. I think it's a great exercise to just think, what is that one sentence thing for me? Maybe it's, he walked with me through the darkest season of my life. What an awesome testimony. He met me when I needed him most. He forgave me of all my sins. He gave me a fresh start. I don't know what it is, but that's one of the most wonderful things that we can give for Jesus, to Jesus, is simply that testimony. He told me everything I ever did. He made the best wine I ever tasted. It doesn't have to be, I mean, look, whatever it is, there's all kinds of things here. What is yours? Like Lazarus, we can give our testimony. And even our very presence in a, in a situation, like we said, can be that testimony. Maybe there's a place you need to go to simply be present. And your presence would communicate the love of Jesus. Maybe it's like Martha. And maybe it's, look, Mar- sometimes Martha gets a bad rap. Because people, somebody needed to prepare me- the meal. And she obviously loved it. That was her default. She went back and was like, I want to cook. I want to put this together. I want to gather the people. That's awesome. And maybe that's it. Maybe what you have to give, what Martha is giving, is she's preparing this space. Like if Martha wasn't there, this space would not have been prepared for this action. The beautiful behind-the-scenes things that happen on a Sunday morning or at this church, and you think about all the people behind the scenes that are getting these things ready, that we have someone up in a room locked away that's on the switcher so that people at home, there's 25 streams every week, people at home that are either homebound or locked in, they can't get out or whatever, or in another place, and they're watching and they're worshiping with us. Why? Because there's some guy locked in a room. How many people have been locked in that room? We don't lock the door, okay? Come on, Rob, raise your hand. You've been locked in that room, okay? We don't lock the door, Maurice. Yeah, Maurice is like, I don't want to go. Oh, no, it's awesome. And we have, we'll take all kinds of volunteers. But there are people behind the scenes that set the room, that set the stage. And Martha did that. Maybe it's our testimony. Maybe it's our service. Maybe it's our wealth. I mean, you think about the extravagance of this, and Mary's like, look, I want to give this. This could be, this is what, one of the ways that people would give inheritances because you didn't have, the banking system was not the same and you couldn't like get a bag of like coins or something like that. So what you would do is you maybe take it and you would, you would invest it into this very small family heirloom, this perfume bottle, that if trouble came, you could liquidate, the, you could liquidate it by selling it, but it would, been, it would have been kind of a social network, like a, a, a social, uh, uh, like a, a safety net. And so, but she says, look, I'm going to take whatever this is and I'm going to use it for the kingdom of God so that Jesus can be exalted. Maybe it's your wealth and maybe you want to give towards something. Maybe there's a ministry you want to give towards. Maybe there's something that you're thinking like, gosh, I, I really want to support this or I really want to support something at the church or I really want to support whatever it is. And like how relief in, in the Ukraine or relief in Syria or Turkey or maybe something more closer to your heart here. And the one thing we all have that we can give, we might not all be wealthy, we can all give a testimony, we can all give our service, but the one thing we can all give is our reputation. We can always put our own reputations on the line for the sake of Jesus, simply to stand up and to be counted as his follower. And all of those things, all of those things are given in this one passage. 
Lazarus gives his testimony, Martha gives her service, Mary gives this expensive bottle of perfume, and she puts her reputation on the line. And these are all things that we might be able to mirror or do. And there are times in our following of Jesus that we might be asked to give one or more of these things.